It's good to see so many of y'all here today, and I'm excited to share with you out of the book of, of Daniel. <clears throat> For those of you who uh, know, I have a Bible study I, I lead here at the church every Tuesday morning, and we actually have been in Daniel for two months now. We're doing one chapter a week, and we're just making our way through that. And so when I was thinking about what I was going to talk about today, um, I figured maybe I'll use the name of God that's in Daniel that I really like and also doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, it was an opportunity for me to really dig into something in Scripture that I hadn't given a lot of time to. Um, and so, yeah, we are talking about Ancient of Days today. But first, I want to do uh, a couple things. I want to catch you up on what's going on in the book of Daniel. So if you aren't intimately familiar with how uh, that book is laid out, the first six chapters uh, kind of read like court proceedings. They are very historical. They're very matter of fact. Uh, there's not a lot of embellishment. There's no uh, prophesying happening. There's some interpretations of dreams and uh, in the first couple chapters is where you get Nebuchadnezzar, uh, basically, he uh, has this dream, and Daniel interprets it for him, and there's this statue made of all these different metals, and the head is the most splendorous, and that head represents Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom, and instead of that being humbling to him, he became very arrogant, built a golden image, told everyone to worship it, if you don't, he'll throw you in a fire, and we all know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow. And so they were thrown into a fire, but they didn't get burned. A couple chapters later, there's another king in town, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is like Nebuchadnezzar on steroids. Like right now, the Babylonian kingdom is under siege by the Medo-Persians, which are two separate groups. Uh, we, we combine them because the, well, the Medes are a very small percentage, and they're also very passive and submissive, and they just follow the lead of the Persian Empire. And so the Medo-Persians are attacking Babylon, and uh, Belshazzar is getting drunk with all of his best friends. And he decides that, hey, you know what? Um, why don't I take all of the valuable chalices uh, that we pilfered from God's temple, fill those with wine and drink and toast to our pagan gods. Not a good idea. Didn't work out too well for him. <laughs> he died that night. Um, and once that happens, that's in, that's in chapter uh, six, we get to chapter seven, and it, it's actually kind of weird because at the beginning of chapter seven, the first verse, it says, in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, but he died in chapter five. So it's jumping around in time. So it's easy to get lost and confused in, in a book that is not in chronological order, but for some reason, the Holy Spirit laid it out like that. And so that's what we read. And in chapter seven, Daniel is going to have visions and dreams that are applicable to the current day for him and then also the end times that we talk about. And there's going to be a, a word that we're going to be talking a lot about today, apocalypse. And what does it really mean? I'm not going to get ahead of myself, though, just that's coming. But before I get there, I want to 
talk a little bit about the theme of Daniel. Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fiery furnace. Daniel was thrown in the den of lions. Uh, the Israelites have been just uh, oppressed horribly by the Babylonians. It didn't get any better when the Medo-Persians took over, et cetera, et cetera. It was a really hard time. And I would say that if we're going to look at the book of Daniel, we need to understand the main point. And, and I, I contend uh, that the main point is this. Contrary to what you see, he wins. He being God. When Daniel was thrown into the den of the lions, that seems like a death sentence. But God won. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, that seems like a loss. But they weren't burned because ultimately God wins. And so when we read in chapter 7, we're going to read some very apocalyptic literature, and it can be kind of scary, but you don't need to be scared because the theme is, contrary to what you see going on around you, he wins. And so his, his name is Atik Yomin, Ancient of Days. It's a, it's a fun, it's a fun name. I like it. I love the song. It's, I mean, it's like 30, 40 years old. But that's okay. I have friends who are 30 or 40 years old, and they're okay. So I'm good. Uh, for those of you who were here last week, I just want you to know I did anoint the slides and pray for them uh, so that they would not betray me today. But I've got a good feeling about this. Um, what Daniel kind of lays out for us in chapter 7 is, like I said, it's, it's a, a snapshot of what's going on in Babylon but then also a taste of what is to come in the end times, kind of touching on some of the things that we learn about in Revelation. And so uh, there is this, uh, this quote that I found that I really like. Once convinced of the truth, this chapter, Daniel 7, is proclaiming the reader is in possession of the key to history. It's a profound statement. She was a theologian in the 1900s, passed away in the 90s. And she said, once convinced of the truth of chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, you hold the key to history. Now, when I said history, I already know I lost some of you. How many people in here really love history and learning about it and studying it? Yeah, there's like 12 of you. <laughs> I'm one of you. But for everybody else in here, I, I can imagine that maybe one of the reasons you didn't really care for it is because you had some bad experiences in school with teachers that just wanted you to memorize a bunch of dates and didn't really dive into the human side of history and you were just practicing rote memorization for a test. And so I wanna uh, share a story with you about what happens to Babylon when the Medo-Persians take over. So the, the, the Persian Empire steps in and then around 336 BC, there's a small group of city-states way out west in Macedonia. And they decide that they're going to get together and form their own country. And it's a man by the name of Philip that organizes them. Uh, there's one city-state in that cluster that decides not to join. Those are the Spartans, which had their own encounter with the Persians. There was a movie about that. Um, but the other 11 formed Greece. Prior to this date, Greece didn't exist. 
So Greece was formed a little over 300 years BC. And the first thing Philip did when they all signed the treaty that they're all together now was declare war on Persia. They had like 30 or 40,000 troops. Sounds like a lot. The Persian Empire had over 800,000. Shortly after he declared war on the Persians, Philip was assassinated. But his son took his place. His son was barely uh, in his late teens at the time, and he took up the mantle of his father to go to war with Persia and win. I want you guys to understand some of the numbers that we're talking about. This would be like Costa Rica declaring war on the U.S. That's not a good idea, right? So they declare war on Persia, and his son, whose name is Alexander, takes the Grecian army and empire, and within 11 years, not only do they overthrow the Medo-Persian empire, but they control the entirety of the known world in 11 years. So imagine Costa Rica declares war on the U.S., and in 11 years, not only do they overthrow U.S., but they now control the entire planet. It is dumbfounding. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible what he was able to accomplish, and that is why we call him Alexander the Great. He died at 33. He didn't have any kind of a succession plan going on, and so when he died, the empire began to crumble, and the people that moved in were the Romans, and they sustained their own empire long into the birth death and resurrection of Christ. All of this is happening in the time period that we're reading in Daniel. It's a beautiful bit of history. I hope hearing that wasn't painful for you because it was a story. It was interesting, at least to me. If you don't like it, you can email Pastor Scott. (laughs) So, let's see here. I'm going to move a couple... Slides over. Interesting. That's, those are not my slides. See, I, I said that I prayed. I said that I prayed, but we lost it. That's okay. Don't worry about it. I know what I'm preaching on. We don't need slides anyway. I'm just going to get to the end. There we go. <clears throat> this will be fun. All right. So, <laughs> Daniel chapter 7. Let's read it real quick. I'm going to pull it up on my phone, and we are going to read the first 14 verses of Daniel chapter 7. Now, like I said, this started, uh, chapter 7 dates itself by saying, in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar, and uh, here we go, Daniel is in the Old Testament, so you got to go to that section in your Bible where the pages are stuck together, and uh, here we go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed, and then he wrote that dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven broke forth upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings were plucked and it was lifted off of the earth and made to stand upon two feet as a man. This is referencing the Babylonian kingdom. A lion with wings was all over their society and culture. 
Anyone reading this back then would have immediately known he was talking about Babylon. All right, picking up again in verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear. It was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said this to it, arise and devour much flesh. Everyone makes perfect sense so far? Great. Verse 6. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon its back four wings of a bird. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions... So interesting way to say dreams. And behold, a fourth beast, terrible and powerful and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped the residue with its feet. And it was uh, different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. That little horn is Alexander the Great. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Verse 9, I beheld till thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days sat. His raiment was white as snow, his hair like pure wood, his wool, his throne fiery flames. And it had wheels that were on fire. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands of thousands ministered unto him. 10,000 times 10,000. Fun fact, in Hebrew, at that time, 10,000 was the largest number they had a name for. So when they're saying 10,000 times 10,000, what he's really saying is you can't count how many there are. It's the most you could possibly imagine. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. Verse 11, I beheld at that time, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke, I beheld even until the beast was killed, its body destroyed, and it was given to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Here's what's interesting. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and the Grecian Empire lasted a really long time, and when one kind of empire took over the other, they were just assimilated. Not so with Rome. God had, I guess, a bone to pick with them, (laughs) and they were annihilated completely. So, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, there came with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. And he came even to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near him. And there he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people, nations, and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is that which shall not be destroyed. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. When I read Daniel 7... There's a lot of things that I can focus on, a lot of things I can get distracted by. But there's one main thing that I want to talk about, like I said, the main point, I think, of the book of Daniel. That no matter how it looks on the outside, he wins. Daniel saw horrible things. Horrible things. He endured horrible things. He didn't lose his faith and he didn't walk away. There's a, uh, a guy by the name of Larry Osborne that uh, 
wrote a book called Thriving in Babylon. And he was talking about how Daniel took this opportunity to get in good graces with the king, a, a place of influence where he could speak into it from a godly perspective. And it's interesting how so many of the Israelites were enslaved and oppressed and Daniel rose to prominence. Daniel was thriving in Babylon. I don't think a lot of us would feel that way. One of the hardest questions that we can ever ask, one of the most dangerous questions we can ever ask is why? When you came into church this morning, I don't know what whys you brought with you. Maybe you lost a loved one recently and you've been praying for them to be healed for months or years and they died. (laughs) And you look at God and you're like, why didn't you listen? Why didn't you do something? Because if God really is working behind the scenes for his glory and our good, why does it not feel like it sometimes? It's a cliche question, but why do bad things happen to good people? Why do we suffer? Why do we have jobs that we hate? Why are we desperately clinging on to the last thread of our marriage as it's falling apart around us? Why are we killing ourselves day after day after day trying to to get the American dream that Jesus himself would never have supported? Two cars, a white picket fence, a suburban house, who cares? To Sandra's point, all that stuff goes away when we die. We can't take it with us. There's one thing we can take to heaven. Other people. Other people. And and Daniel, the book of Daniel, really touches on this really, really, really well. Lays out for us what it looks like to be in the midst of such extreme oppression and endure. I don't know what whys you brought with you when you came in this morning. I know the ones that I brought. I know the whys that I bring every single week, every single day when I go home. I know the questions that I have. I know the things that keep me up at night. Sometimes, even today, I'll be perfectly honest with you, my mom passed away nine years ago. And some days I'm just like, man, why? Why? She was as much of a nerd as as I was, so this might make some of you laugh, but I'm being genuine there's so many, uh, okay, yep, see, remember last week I said I put my phone in airplane mode? Missed it. There are so many things that have happened in the last nine years that she would have loved. She never got to see, like, Avengers Endgame and Infinity War. And she loved those movies. It was so fun. I was a kid when Lord of the Rings came out, when when movie theaters actually did midnight premieres. I was like in sixth grade when the first one came out. And my mom took my brothers and I to the theater. And those movies, by the way, if you haven't seen them, very long. Starts at midnight really means after previews, it starts at 1220, and it's a three and a half hour movie. So we were getting out of the theater at like 4 a.m., and I was 10. but those are good memories I can hold on to. And that's what I have to hold on to. Because asking why 
you may never get an answer. This way leads to madness. It's not about the why. It's about the who. And that who is God. So why do bad things happen to good people? I brought up Larry Osborne in his book, Thriving in Babylon, a minute ago. And the, the crazy thing is that it had this perfect analogy for, for what I just asked. It's almost like God was speaking to him when he wrote the book, for my benefit. Hallelujah. How many people in here are Notre Dame fans? Anyone? Good, because I'm going to deeply offend you. Okay, great. Awesome. Whew, load off my mind. Um, so uh, he is... Uh, huge fan of USC, and there's a big rivalry between them and Notre Dame. And years ago, he was at a game, and while he was at the game, he was um, passionately cheering from the sidelines. There's a minute left, and Notre Dame just got a touchdown and surpassed USC, 32 to 29. And there's a minute left on the clock, and so Larry said that at this point he was praying desperately, like, God, please do something, you know. And, and, and maybe, maybe he was thinking, like, they're going to, you know, they're going to do the return punt, you know, after the touchdown. And maybe they'll get a really good run. They'll, they'll catch that ball and they'll run really far without getting tackled. That's not what happened. They ended up catching the ball and getting, like, immediately tackled, like, 80 yards from the goal. There's less than a minute left. And if you're not familiar with some of the rules of football, there it's, the, the, the clock's not stopping right now. <laughs> you got to get to a first down, right? And so, uh, or go out of bounds, but anyway, it doesn't matter. So, they're like 80 yards away from the goal line. And when they make the first play, the quarterback gets the ball, it snaps to him. He takes a few steps back, and there's no openings anywhere. So he takes a few more steps back, and a few more steps back, and a few more steps back, and then he gets sacked. So instead of being 10 yards away from a first down and subsequently 70 yards to the goal, they're now 19 on a third down. <laughs> it's not looking good. And, and at this point, there's like 10 seconds left in the match, and what happens is Notre Dame fans go nuts. They're like, we just won this game. This is amazing. Uh, if you don't know about Notre Dame, they've got like a leprechaun guy that comes out and dances. And he literally does cartwheels on the field. The game is still going on. But everyone was so assured of the victory that Notre Dame was going to have. And so he's just getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And, and years later, <clears throat> when he was writing this book, he mentioned how he has a VHS, to let you know how old the story is, he has a VHS tape of that match, and he'll watch it. And he'll, he'll look at the Notre Dame fans who are ecstatic, cheering, doing cartwheels in the field, just, just yelling and hooting and hollering, and they're just, they're celebrating. And it puts a smile on his face. Do you want to know why it put a smile on his face? Because when they were 19 on a third down, they got the ball, quarterback backs up, one of his wide receivers gets open, he throws it, a record 63-yard pass. The clock is done. Once he either gets tackled, goes out of bounds, or hits the end zone, the game is over. He gets the touchdown. 
It was crazy. So crazy. He gets the touchdown. And now, here's what's interesting. When he was watching that game, the stress, the pain, the, the fear that he was experiencing, he's a lifelong diehard fan of USC. He was so worried. But now, when he watches those replays, he's not full of worry. Do you know why? Because he knows how the story ends. So when he watches that, he can see the leprechaun doing cartwheels, and he can see the fans going nuts, but he knows in a few more seconds we're going to get a touchdown and we're going to win. Apocalyptic prophecy is the end of our story on earth. We know how it ends. We know where this is going. And Larry, his book really challenged me because the the point that he's making, okay, the point that he's making is that when you know how the story ends, the rest of the stuff doesn't matter anymore. And when you can accept that, and that's a hard thing to accept. I struggle with this. It's a hard thing to accept. But when you can accept that, you stop asking why. Because you know how the story ends. You know that the beast, the antichrist, Satan, they're going to get cast into a lake of fire, cast into a bottomless pit. They're going to be gone permanently forever. And the book of, of Daniel is giving us a taste of that the, the phrase that is translated as ancient of days, atik yomin, that could be literally translated as before days were. To Sandra's point she made earlier during the kids' message, ancient of days means that God has existed eternally in a way that we can't comprehend. But I love Ecclesiastes 3. In Ecclesiastes 3, if you're not familiar with it, it's the passage where it says there's a time for everything. A time to sow and a time to harvest. A time for peace and a time for war. A time for joy and a time for sadness. There's a time for all of these things. It's a long list. And right after that list is when the author of Ecclesiastes lets us know that God put eternity in the heart of man. Have you ever felt like you were missing something? Have you ever felt like you were one step away from something and you, just, you couldn't think of, of what it could be? You're just discontent and disgruntled, unfulfilled. That is the eternity that is inside of us that is constantly reminding us that this is not our home. We are vagabonds. We're nomads. My favorite book by Brendan Manning is called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And when he wrote it, he dedicated it to Rich Mullins. And at this point, this is when the the youth and the young adults and my Bible study on Tuesday morning laugh because I talk about Rich Mullins all the time. (laughs) Awesome God, that was him. Sing your praise to the Lord. While the nations rage, step by step, creed, so many powerful songs. The thing that has always attracted me to Rich Mullins is his heart, his spirit, his humility. I love that song, While the Nations Rage. 
where are the nails that pierced his hands? Well, the nails have turned to rust, but behold the man. He is risen, and he saves. Where are the thorns that drew his blood? Well, the thorns have turned to dust, but not so the love he has given. No, it remains. In the heart of his children, who will love while the nations rage. Nations are raging, guys. And we know how the story ends. We don't know when it ends, but that should give us the urgency to to pursue less of the American dream and more the salvation of the souls of the people in our neighborhood. Are we loving in the midst of all the rage? Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having comforts at home. There isn't. Jesus' robe that was being bartered and and gambled away while he was on the cross was made from a single piece of fabric. It was an expensive piece of clothing that Jesus had. I don't have a problem with people having money. I have a problem with pursuing that and not the unreached, not the lost. And so when we read Daniel, it reminds us, it it reiterates for us the importance of recognizing that the, the end of all things is just a threshold into a new eternity with God. And my heart wants so desperately to see heaven as full as it can possibly be. Daniel's name means God is my judge. It can mean, uh, you can interpret it a couple different ways. You can interpret it that it means that only God can judge him, which if you hear that in pop culture, you know, it's not that great of a statement these days. Only God can judge me. I'm going to do whatever the heck I want. Or you can look at it as uh, him being an advocate on behalf of, that he is in Daniel's corner. And that's so very apparent throughout Daniel's life throughout his time in Babylon. The reason he thrived is not because he was really good at schmoozing and and rubbing shoulders with people. He thrived because he obeyed God and God caused him to thrive. The church tends to do really well when it's being oppressed. Look at the underground churches that, that were prolific in China in the 80s and the 90s. In Russia, it's literally illegal to evangelize in public. I mean, there are, there are Christian brothers and sisters that we have, but those churches are flourishing. Why? Because they don't have any distractions anymore. It's all about God. And I think that's what apocalyptic prophecy does for us. It puts things into perspective. And so, ancient of days, he existed before time began. He he created time for our benefit. It didn't exist until he was making us, when he made days and nights and put the lights in the sky. Ancient of days, before days were even a thing. So this morning, you came into church and you had baggage. I came into the church this morning with baggage. And I'm up here preaching. Now you might ask yourself, John, if you're not perfect, why are you a pastor? 
to that, I would say no one would be a pastor except for Scott. He's 10 out of 10. <laughs> it's always weird when your boss is in the room. I don't know. Like, <laughs> no, no. Uh, the, the, the last thing that I want to really sit with for just about two minutes, and then I'm going to turn it over to, to Pastor Scott. I keep coming back to this, and I'm going to follow it all the way through this time. I don't know what baggage you brought with you. I don't know what questions you brought with you. I don't know what answers you are desperately seeking in the, the dark night when the light's off and you're lying in bed, but you can't fall asleep because something is assailing your mind and your peace. I know what that's like. And I'm so sorry. That's not easy. And here's the reality. When we look at the Lord's prayer, and he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you look at Jesus saying that in the garden when he asks God, take this cup from me. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but Lord, your will be done. You know what that tells me? That sometimes my prayers aren't aligning with God's will. Sometimes I'm going to pray and I will still suffer. But that's okay because I know how the story ends. The story of the Shunammite woman who, who desperately wanted a child and late in life God gave her one and then the child got sick and died when he was still not even a teenager. The pain that she must have felt, yet she didn't lash out to God. She went to the only holy man that she knew, ran out to him and said, the Lord is with you. She didn't run out to him and say, please save my son, bring him back. And he asked her, is everything okay? And she says, yes, everything's fine, but come with me. The composure the ability to have just lost your, your child and to be able to, to recognize that what you need most in that moment is to be as close to God as possible or as close to other people who will bring you before the presence of God when you're too weak to get up and walk yourself there. The only reason that I'm alive today is because of some of the best friends I ever made when I moved to Orlando. That week after week after week, we sat around a table and we played games and we hung out and we just had fun. I was always the funny guy, but I wasn't very funny. I was miserable. And he stayed by my side. And in a moment of clarity, I realized that People didn't just love me because I was funny. These people loved me in all of my goodness and in all of my brokenness. They loved me. And that, that got me on the right course again. So I don't know what you brought in the door with you. But I just want to pray. And I want to give you the opportunity to to stand, I'm not going to ask you to come down. I'm not going to ask you to do a bunch of religious, ritualistic things. You can stand if you want. You don't have to. I don't need to know if you don't want me to know. 
That's between you and God. But if you were last week, you have my cell phone number, so you can call me. Actually, a lot of people did, so thank you. Um, That was really nice, actually. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that that God would help to keep, as Charlie Meyer says, the main thing, the main thing. That we focus on Christ. That we be like Peter, that we step out of the boat and we fix our gaze on him. Let's pray. Lord, I love you so much. You are good, and your mercy endures forever. As we sit here, some of us in this room, others online, even others maybe watching days, weeks, months ahead, years even. You know what we're dealing with. You know the deepest cries of our hearts. And you don't ask us to cover up. You don't ask us to to fix it. You ask us to come as we are, boldly into your throne room. And so we do that this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that today would be the end of shame in this room. I pray that today would be the end of perfectionism in this room. That we would not just praise and give accolades to the things that men look at, but that we look at character, we look at fruit, the things that God does. Lord, thank you for the reminder that you don't need me to be perfect. You knew I never could be, and so that's why you sent Jesus. So for all of us here, Remind us every day, Lord, that you are the ancient of days, that you are our God, and we love you, and we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Before Scott comes up, there's one thing that I want to mention about ancient of days. It was a a revelation that I had a couple days ago when I was at Barnes & Noble drinking coffee and working on this sermon. And I asked myself, what does it mean that God exists outside of time? And do you know what I think he told me? I say I think because I'm never going to be so arrogant as to assume that I'm always right. I don't want to pull the thus saith the Lord trump card. I believe that he said, you know, because I don't exist inside of time, I experience all time at the same time. That means the hurts that you felt years ago, he feels today, because for him, today is also years ago. And the hurts that you're going to have in the future, he's already there too. It's easy for God to go ahead of you. He's eternally ahead of you. He exists outside of time. He has seen your entire life in the blink of an eye, and he loves you. Greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. And we know that God loves us because even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for a perfect church. He died to make the church perfect in his sight. God is good.
He is so good. Ancient of days. For all eternity. Well, Pastor Scott, would you like to come up and uh, segue from that? (laughs) Amen. Well, John, we love you. And that was uh, fantastic. Contrary to what you see, he wins.